Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. You join us again on this journey through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you're here for the very first time, then please stick around at the end and I'll just give you some information on ways in which you can connect to this ministry and all the free teaching and Bible study resources we make available. So today we're continuing our study through season three, which is the Gospel of Matthew, and we're considering the rather uh, delicate subject of well, to put it in no uncertain terms, demonic possession and exorcism. And we'll see what we can learn from Jesus's approach to dealing with people who are struggling in these areas of their life. But with that said, I'll say bye-bye for now and I'll catch up with you at the end. Bye for now then. Okay, today we're going to be covering Matthew chapter 12 verses 22 to 30. A difficult and some might say controversial issue because of the subject it deals with. But by way of introduction I do feel I need to point out a few facts. Firstly, it's important to understand that in the first century Eastern world it was not only mental psychological illnesses which were ascribed to the influence of demons and the devils all illness and factors attributed to that malignant type of powers and exorcism was very commonly practiced and there are many records to show that not only that it happened but that it appeared to be very effective now there's nothing in that that surprises me i still personally believe that even today that many physical illnesses can still be entirely spiritual in nature or at least have their beginnings their root in mental health or the spiritual aspects of life even amongst ourselves today at the very simplest level we recognize that stress might give us a headache or we can convince ourselves that we have some illness which in some ways can then become a self-fulfilling prophecy and it's easy to see why a person at that time, accepting the, the norm of that time that all illness was caused by, by Satan or the demonic realm, if you approached your life from that perspective, it's easy to understand why when uh, confronted with someone who was an exorcist in whom they had confidence and you had confidence in them, then often the sickness would be dispelled and the cure would be the result. In such cases, a person would be cured and cured indeed, and sometimes they would be convinced that they were cured and thereby cured indeed. But what Jesus did and the way in which he dealt with the demonic forces, well, we shall have a look and see what he did. And was it any different? Was it any different to the practice of the Jewish exorcists of his day? So let's pick up the text and I'll read just up to verse 29 to begin with, which tells us, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that they could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. 
If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions until he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Right now, in this instance, Jesus is seen to cure a man who is declared to be blind, deaf and dumb, and whose infirmity was attributed absolutely to demon possession, and he is seen to heal him. And it tells us, first of all, he just speaks with him, and it says he heals him, but it also says that the people were amazed. They began to wonder if Jesus could be the son of David, the long-promised and long-expected great saviour and liberator. Any doubt or questions they had was only due to the fact that Jesus was so unlike the picture of the son of David, of the Messiah, which they had in their mind, the idea of Messiah that they had been brought up to believe in. Because what stood before them was no glorious prince with pomp and circumstance. He didn't appear to be a great warrior, rattling his swords, and he had no conquering army with him. He was not even calling upon them to rise up against the Roman oppressors. He was simply a carpenter from Galilee who spoke words of gentle wisdom. He saw things with a compassionate eye and by his hands ministered gentle healing power. Now all the time the scribes and Pharisees have we seen for a while now, they've been looking critically on. They've already arrived at their own solution to the dilemma of Jesus Christ that he presented them. We heard in yesterday's episode that they'd actually reached a point where they concluded that Jesus must be destroyed because they believed he was in league with the prince of devils himself, or they certainly chose to describe it that way. But Jesus refutes their allegations again, just like he did yesterday. And today, in this passage, he's doing so. And again, he presents three further unanswerable, I would suggest, replies to the charges they're making against him. Firstly, if he was indeed casting out devils by the help of the prince of devils, as they described Satan, it could only mean that in the demonic kingdom that there was a war within it, that it was split and at war with itself. If the prince of devils was providing power and giving it to Jesus to bring about the destruction of his own demonic agents, then there was a sort would mean a sort of civil war in the kingdom of Satan, and that clearly that would mean that kingdom was doomed. But Jesus says neither a house nor a city can remain strong when it is divided against itself. Dissension with any system of power always begins to spell the end of that power structure. Even if the scribes and the Pharisees were right, which seems highly improbable to me, it would have meant that Satan's days were numbered because there was war within a demonic realm. So to put it simply, Jesus is saying and demonstrating that their argument simply was not logical. Secondly, Jesus says, if I'm casting out and you cannot or do not or are not able to do it, it means that I have invaded the territory of Satan and I am like a burglar despoiling his house, as he puts it. Clearly no one, he says, can get into a strong man's house until that strong man is tied up and rendered helpless. Therefore, the very fact he is saying that I've been able to successfully invade Satan's territory must in some way prove that Satan has been bound and is powerless to resist my power. 
By the way, the picture of the strong man Jesus is using here is actually taken from another messianic prophecy from Isaiah in chapters 49 verses 24 to 26. Now understanding that perspective leads us to ask another question. With this strong man is the devil, when was the devil bound? When was the prince of demons chained and bound in such a way that Jesus was now able to breach his defences? Well, most Bible experts suggest that this was prophesied in Genesis when the serpent had his head crushed, but actually happened at the point he successfully resisted the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. You remember, Satan attempted to tempt Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus resisted. And of course, the prophecy was ultimately fulfilled with Jesus' death and resurrection from the cross. When Jesus faced the tempter in the wilderness and overcame him with his obedience to the will of Father and by his use of the word of God, that's key, the word of God was the thing that defeated Satan. Something happened that day which is having its effect this day. For the first time, you see, Satan had found someone where all his tricks, all his machinations, all his wiles could not seduce that someone to sin. There was someone that he had tried to attack that he was not able to conquer spiritually. And from that very time, the power of Satan was never quite the same again. He no longer had the all-conquering ability to utilize the power of darkness to have control over men over this man first and foremost. It was the beginning of his destruction and it began in the wilderness when the power of sin was defeated for the first time. Satan's defences were breached. Were breached. Now the enemy is not yet fully conquered at this point but his power will never be the same again and that is why many believe what happened to Satan during the field wilderness temptation And that not only it happened that day, but Jesus today can now help others win the same victory he had won that day. Now I'd like to talk a minute about exorcism and the truth about exorcism and what was going on at this time and had been for some centuries, but at this time in first century Palestine. You see, Jesus' second argument, to which he's now come, was to point out that his accusers, the Jewish leadership themselves of that day, also practiced exorcism. These Jews of Jesus' day practiced exorcism and expelled demons and brought about healings. And if he was practicing exorcism by the power of the prince of devils, then by nature, if they were doing the same thing, then they must surely be doing it in the same way. For they were dealing with the same diseases and on occasion we know that they were successful and they were having the same effect of delivering these poor people. So the question we have to ask is what is the difference between what they were doing and what he's doing here? So I'd like for a moment for us to take a look at at the customs and the methods of the Jewish exorcists for they are a remarkable contrast to the practice and the method that Jesus uses here. There are lots of accounts in ancient history of exorcisms being carried out amongst the Jewish people. Josephus, a very respectable historian of the era, says that the power to cast out demons was a continuing part of what was seen as the wisdom of Solomon and that was continued to be practiced among the Jewish people right up until the first and second century when he recorded. He describes a case which he saw 
He actually wrote about it in chapter 2 of his second volume in a series of books or scrolls, if you like, called Antiquities. Now, I'm going to do something I don't normally do, which is read a lengthy section out of something that is not biblical, but a historical document from that time which goes on to explain in some detail the methods of what these Jewish people did, what they did, and how it's interesting to note how it contrasts to what what Jesus was doing at the same time. So we can see the comparison and the difference between the two. So Josephus writes, God enabled Solomon to learn that skill which expelled demons, which is a science useful and health-bringing to men and women. He composed such incantations by which distempers are alleviated. And he left behind him also the manner of using exorcisms by which they still drive away demons so they never return. And this method of cure is of great force unto this day. For I have seen a certain man of my own country, whose name was Eliezer, releasing people who were demonical in the presence of Vesperian and his sons and his captains and and the whole multitude of his soldiers. The manner of the cure was this. He put a ring that had a root which was one of those sorts of roots mentioned by Solomon in the nostrils of the demonic. And after he drew the demon out through his nostrils, the man fell down immediately. He then adjured the demon to return into him no more, making still mention of Solomon and reciting the incantations which he had composed. And when Eliezer would persuade and demonstrate to the spectators that he had such power, he set a little way off a cup or a basin full of water, and he commanded the demon, as he went out of the man, to overturn it, and thereby to let the spectators know that they had indeed left the man. And when this was done, the skill and wisdom of Solomon was shown very manifestly. So that's from Josephus, volume 2 of his Antiquities, chapter 8. Uh, starting at verse 5. So here we see a description of the Jewish method of exorcism as practiced at that time. Here we see the whole paraphernalia of what almost looks and sounds to me a bit like a magic show. It almost has an occult-like tone to it and how different it is to the peaceful, gentle power of what Jesus says and does when he helps people who are struggling this way. Josephus goes on to give us further information about how these Jewish exorcists worked. They were known to use a certain root of a plant which was regularly used in exorcism and Josephus talks about it as coming from the valley of Machaerus and it was called by the same name. Its colour was said to be red like that of a flame and he says it was not easily eaten. In fact it was not possible to ingest it unless you diluted it with of all things either urine or blood. And even then, there was the risk that it could be potentially fatal if you got the quantities wrong. Yet in spite of all the risks involved, it was this that was given to sick people in order to drive away demons. What a difference between Jesus' word of power and this, I can only describe it as witch doctoring, which the Jewish exorcists were now using. This was the very sort of thing the Jewish exorcists did and it seems that many people sought deliverance from evils and from the sorrows of both mental and physical distress by use of these religious rituals and incantations. 
Now, on one hand, I can fully expect that sometimes, when approached from a perspective of faith, that many, of course, would have had, at least for a little while, and in the mercy of God, some find some comfort and relief. But in Jesus, we see complete healing as coming through just talking to him, i.e. by just coming face to face with the word of God and with its power to bring men and women to the perfect deliverance that was needed and some had been desperately seeking for years. And of course, and with, until Jesus came, people had never been able to find. One of the most interesting things in this whole passage is the final verse, in the final verses, when Jesus says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I think this is a very significant verse and we should note that the sign of the coming of the kingdom as described by Jesus here is not given as evidence of full synagogues and great revival meetings but the defeat of pain and suffering. Final verse, verse 30. He is not with me, is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. The picture of gathering and scattering comes from two backgrounds. It comes from harvesting. He who is not sharing in gathering and harvesting is scattering the grain abroad and therefore is losing it to the wind. And it also comes from shepherding. He who is not helping keep the flock safe by bringing them into the fold is leaving it out exposed to the dangers of the world. In this one piercing sentence, this one verse, Jesus lays down the fact that it is impossible to be neutral in your response to these events. In this war against Satan in the demonic realm, there are only two sides, for Christ or against Christ. You're either gathering with him or scattering with Satan. We may apply this saying to ourselves and to the community of other Christian believers we mix with. If our presence is there amongst them, then we are there with them, strengthening people. But if we decide to absent ourselves from the community, then we are weakening it. There's no halfway house. If what we choose to do is absent ourselves, then we are making a choice. The refusal to choose a side on which you ascribe yourself, it means you're either giving assistance to God's people or in fact you're in a sense offering support to the other side. Now there are three things that might tempt us to sit on the fence and remain neutral and I would suggest they are these. One is the desire to avoid conflict. It is a fact that many people automatically shrink away from anything which is disturbing or involves conflict. But don't let that fear of conflict persuade you to sit on the fence on this issue. Secondly, there is the spirit of fear. Many people refuse to walk and live the way of Christ because they are afraid to take a stand upon the issues that Christianity demands we remain unflinchingly upon. The basic thing that stops most people is the thought of what other people will say. We are worried about the voice of our neighbours or our colleagues. and In other words, the voice of our friends and colleagues is louder than in our ears and the voice of God. Another thing that stops people taking that risky decision of to be identify and be part of the body of Christ, the people who are disciples of him, is the desire for security. Most people in reality would rather, I believe, have security in life than actually have a life of adventure. And the older we grow, the more that appears to be the case, I think. 
a challenge, a challenging life will always involve a degree of adventure and a lack of security. Christ does, after all, come to us with a challenge and often we would rather respond with a life of comfort and activity and a sense of security. And thereby selfish inaction often becomes the choice rather than the adventure of living a life of action for Christ. And the saying of Jesus, he who is not with me is against me, presents us with a problem. For both Mark and Luke have this saying, which appears to be the very reverse of this. They inflect it and say, he that is not against us is for us. Now at first that might appear contradictory, but it's not so as it seems. It is to be noted that Jesus spoke this other verse when his disciples came and told him that they had been told to stop casting out devils in his name because he was not one of their company. So advice to them was, he that is not with me is against me, is the test that we ought to apply to ourselves. Ask ourselves, am I truly on the Lord's side or, or am I going to shuffle through life in a state of cowardly neutrality? But the Matthew verse, he that is not against us is force, is a test that we ought to apply to others. So we need to ask, Are we given to condemning other people who don't speak with our exact understanding of the word or who worship with the same style or music or share our political ideas even? Are we in danger of limiting the kingdom of God to those who think of of, of us? The saying in the present passage is a test to apply to ourselves while the saying in Mark and Luke is a test that we ought to apply to others. For we must always judge ourselves with the highest standards and other people with tolerance. Okay, folks, I hope you found that helpful. That's it for today. If you're here for the first time, then please click on the subscribe button and make a decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life as well. And if you are enjoying or appreciating this teaching, then why not consider liking it or sharing it on the part of the internet world that you exist on social media so more people can be brought within the orbit of the Bible, the the writings of the Bible and the teaching of the Word of God and allow it to make an impact in their lives also. That is how I'm told most people are coming to in the orbit of this teaching. So I'd just like to thank each and every one of you for joining me here today. And I do hope that I'll see you again soon and that you will be back as we journey together through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, in the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.